We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning to all. It's good to see you this morning. Good to see uh, I've, I've seen two of the Collins clan now. That's super. They're all here. Wonderful. Thank you, Brother James. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. We're going to turn again to Psalm 111 to begin, which is where we were last week. Last week, I was a bit ambitious. I talked about wanting to speak about three Psalms, 111, 112, and 113. They all three began with that uh, praise the Lord. I didn't get nearly as far along as what I suggested I might. But it's good now to go back and, and look again. I prepared some things for today, but there is a connection between Psalm 111 and 112 that I want us to, to take note of and so I'm going to start again in verse, I mean, in, in Psalm 111. And, and hopefully that will work out nicely for us to, to see what we're looking at here. So when we see a psalm or the expression, praise the Lord, that should get our attention. That should get our attention. Praise the Lord. Now, given that we are people who consider things, it would be natural for us to have or to entertain the thought as to, well, raise a few questions. Praise the Lord. Who is he? Why should I do that? So I think it's interesting the way that this psalm starts, the psalm here. We know that the psalm is written in the context of, well, it's a part of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And it is, comes out of a context of Jewish history, God's work with his people, Israel. And so the covenants that God made with his people, we can see reflections of those things specifically in these psalms. So, there's a historical element to it, but it supersedes history in terms of the value and what is being taught. And so the principles that God has here that were for the people of old are the same that he has for us now. And so we can look into these psalms and we can learn about God and about ourselves and about what our relation ought to be with him and how we should consider him. 
the psalmist who wrote this had given consideration to those words. He knew how he stood in relation to them. And so he was able to say for himself, after beginning with the words, praise the Lord, he says, I will praise the Lord. So now that's personal. But then he says, with my whole heart. And that makes it all the more precious because he's saying that with his innermost being, he is going to do this. And that he's not going to be shy about it. He's going to be willing to praise the Lord, and it doesn't matter the context or the situation he might be in, whether he's in a smaller gathering or in a more public one. He's willing to stand up and to be seen as one who praises this particular Lord. Sometimes people are a bit shy about being open about what they believe, especially in the company of others whom they know don't believe that way. But this psalmist gives us the notion and the understanding that that is not the proper way to be. And so that's how he begins it. So he says, praise the Lord wholeheartedly. I put a couple, a few little labels on some of these sets of verses here. So I just, for that one, I just said, praise the Lord wholeheartedly from verse number one. And then we go on to verses two and three. And at the top of my notes there, I say study his works. I made a mention last time about the importance of that and about that laboratory in Cambridge, England, where somebody had posted up words from the psalm. But here's what it says there in 111, in verses 2 and 3. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. His work, God's work. Just the fact of being able to observe and to study and to learn of God's work is absolutely awe-inspiring. And while we don't know much of his works, and I would say humanity really doesn't understand much of God's works, but we are amazed to a great extent by what we know and what people have learned of God's great works. So his work is honorable. And then it says, and his righteousness endures forever. Look at the connection between those. So we have this righteous being, this righteous God, and his works. And obviously, of course, his works would be honorable and they would be awesome. Or as the NIV would put it, Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. 
We read of the creation and an account of it in Genesis, where at the end of the creation days, a God had looked at what he had done. And what he had done, obviously, was marvelous. We can't fathom words sufficient to express the marvel of what God had done. But he did it. But the point I want to draw attention to is this. What this psalmist says here about the works of the Lord are great. But what about God's estimate of what his works, what he had done on creation day? What about his estimate of that? Because the best estimate, and I use the word estimate for us, not that God estimated anything, but the best that we can understand is what God would say himself. And what did he say? In verse 31 of chapter 1 of Genesis, this is what he said. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. That's, those are amazing words. And so the psalmist then, when he says about the works of the Lord, he's in exactly the right place. He understands what he's talking about. And so now for the next three verses, four through six, I put a heading before my uh, mind that says, remember his works. Some translations, depending on which one you might read, they might say he causes us or he makes us remember his works, the, the, the way that the Lord, these words are rendered here. The verses four through six say this. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. I'm reading from the, from the New King James Version. If somebody might wonder from which version I'm reading. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works and given them the heritage of the nations. And so we think about the Abrahamic covenant as expressed to us in Genesis 15, 17, other places, that out of that context, these words flow as to what God has done, that uh, his works are to be remembered, to remember. Many times I have stood here and I've talked about the whole concept of remembering, that we need to remember not everything, but the important things, the works of God. Because if we keep those things in our memory, it will help us in keeping our thinking straight so that when things come toward us or come at us or come in our ear, our eye channels, we, have a, we can adjust and keep that and look right at it right through what God has revealed and to keep, keep us, help us avoid being deceived, which so many are in so many things. I'm going to move along now to the next portion here. The nature of God's great works is ahead, and I put on the next uh, couple of verses here. 
and actually that's verses seven through nine in Psalm 111. And this is what it says. The works of his hands are verity and justice and his people are sure. And his precepts, I'm sorry. I'm going to start at verse 7 again. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. So the Israelite people, as they struggle through their various uh, difficulties and times of being at odds with the will and the direction of the Lord, they were able to see that their God was a real God and he delivered them through so many tragic events and difficulties. And there were certain prophecies that were made regarding them as a people and what many things are still yet future. But they that their God, the God they had, their God was a real God. He was a true God. There was no one who, it, who could hold a candle to him, the true God. The works of his hands, his precepts. There's no shadow of turning with him. He is steadfast and sure. He is trustworthy and dependable. Never can one go wrong by putting a trust in him because of who he is. He has commanded his covenant forever. You know, I think about what the scripture says about Abraham. And it's quoted in Galatians chapter 3, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And how long was that good for? Forever. See? Forever. He commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And then on the last verse here in Psalm 111 are these words. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. We talked about that a bit. The fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. Recognizing the greatness of God's works. One should appropriately fear him God should be regarded with respect and with reverence. The proper attitude of the creature towards the creator is the beginning, the foundation upon which wisdom can be built. If that is thrown out, then the acquisition of what humans call wisdom often is nothing more than foolishness because they have neglected to have any reverence for God, to any fear of God, 
any thought of God in their thoughts, imaginations, in their concerns. But they produce all these tomes, and they tell people this is wisdom. And a lot of people follow it, hook, line, and sinker. But it's not. It's the blinding of their eyes that causes them not to be able to see. And that's a sad state we don't want to be our own. And so now then, this majesty of God, who he is in all of this. And now we've got to segue into Psalm 112. I was thinking about Psalm 112 because there it focuses on that person who is the righteous one the righteous man, and recognizing and having the proper relation to God and understanding of who he is, and then say, okay, so what does that mean for me personally to acknowledge him and who he is? What does that mean? What does it, what does it bring to my life? The psalmist here talks about that sort of thing in Psalm 112. Now, we know that there's a tendency among people, good Christian people even, to pick up a section of scripture, read in there, see something they like, grab it, and say, oh man, that's, I got that, that's me, I grabbed that. But one of the things that we understand is, is that while all of this, everything given, all scripture is, you know, it's profitable for us. But not every promise that may, is made is directly specifically to us. And so we have to be mindful of the context in which the material is given and how it might correctly be used to our benefit or to be understood uh, so as to be beneficial to us. So with that, let me just read Psalm 112. I wrote an intro, I guess you can call it that, to, to uh, Psalm 112. I'm going to get to that after I read the psalm, <laughs> and, and you'll see what I'm trying to get at. But let's just see what the psalm says. It says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Did you just hear me read something very similar to that? In the previous psalm, the very last verse there, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Blessed is the man now in verse 1 of chapter of 112. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights in greatly in his commandments. And then, so here then, let me just read on. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. 
he will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely, he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees the desire of his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away the the desire of the wicked shall perish. The blessed state of the righteous. This is a wonderful thing. As I said, the context has a historical setting. But I'm going to now share with you some of what I put in here as an entree to this psalm. I'm thinking about what I was thinking about as I prepared this and how I might use it. Or, but here's what I put. So that the context in which we live is not identical to the context in which the psalmist wrote the psalm. However, as a portion of God's revelation, it has a lot to teach us, just as it did the original recipients. We do not wish to reach into the psalm and grab on to things we like, such as wealth and riches. We should also be careful not to merely skip over unpleasant things such as wicked and the desire of the wicked. The general principle here is that great blessings will be the portion of the righteous person who fears the Lord. The psalmist puts every person in a category the righteous and the wicked. In life's journey, those in the righteous category will be, will be blessed along the way and also may have many trials. The greatest blessing of the righteous is in the future. The wicked who remain so to the end of the journey, may enjoy many blessings along the way, but will have a very horrifying forever. The context in which we live is not identical to that context. But now, the general principle here is about the great blessings that will come 
and will be the portion for those who have their trust in him. And so when we read Psalm 112, we can think, so now, for me to be able to read the psalm in the best light for me, how do I go about that? And so I entitled this portion of my, of my presentation, What Kind of People Should We Be? What kind of people should we be? In which category one wishes to be at the end? If you were to ask the question of people, would say the righteous one. And that would be the right answer. But what if you ask, what category are you in now? That, for many people, is a much more difficult question. There are people who have come to faith, profess the Lord, walk with him as best they understood, who worry that maybe they're going to fall out of the category. But we know that if God has indeed saved a person, they never can fall out of it. But if they haven't learned that, then they may think they can and be terrified by the prospect. So, what must one do to assure themselves that they will be in the category that they know to be the better one? There are answers to that. Now, I will make mention that both these Psalms, 111 and 112, are rendered in a form, a, a poetical form that's called an acrostic. Acrostic. And so what has happened here, what the psalmist has done is use the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet to begin each of the 22 lines as it's rendered in each of these psalms. Now, there are suggestions as to why that's done. One note, thing we know that it is a a poetic form, something that this acrostic presentation this way is helpful for memory, for memorizing the psalms. And sometimes we make acrostic ourselves for things we want to memorize. Some, I've done it sometimes with Bible verses that I'm trying to memorize, just make an acrostic. And then, and just, just, you know, a letter or sometimes even maybe a number or whatever, something that's going to jog your memory as you go down to learn and, and memorize or recite. So, so here's what I propose here. As to, as so I said, well, if you're going to be able to get the right answer, the correct answer, how can you know the right answer? There must be a source that contains the correct answer. If there's no source that contains the correct answer, how can you get it? There has to be a source. And since there is a source, in the speaking of thinking, contrary to that, it's useless, the source. 
You know, one of the other ways that people have thought about this use of the acrostic is the idea of, of completeness. When it has used all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, that is conveying a completeness, covering the whole subject, or as we have used the expression from A to Z, because those are the letters of our alphabet. So I'm going to give the abbreviated answers to the questions to how to get yourself situated so that you're ready best to, you're in the best position to appreciate and appropriate what Psalm 112 is saying. So I said there has to be a source that contains the answer. And for that, I, I lifted a couple of, I put a couple of scriptures down. Now we know, those of us who have been studying the Bible, that there are many places in scripture where you can go to get answers, the answers, correct answer to this issue. But the ones I have selected are these. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse number 16, it says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. So we're talking about the revealed will of God, the revealed word of God. What The source is God, but the availability to us is through his written word. He's made it available to us. He's the source. But the information comes to us, to us through his word. That's why we keep saying our Bibles are the most important book that we're ever going to have access to. And probably the most neglected book in the world. That's kind of ironic that the most important book in the world will be the most neglected one. But it is that way, I believe. Now, Second Peter chapter 2 uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, 2 Peter 1, verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so this just is saying that God has given to us what we need to know. It's available to us. There is a source. So what is the correct answer to the question? How to situate oneself so that they are in the best place. All that means is to be in a right relationship to the creator God, we say to be saved, to be born from above, to be born again, to, to be born of God's spirit. I went to John chapter 3. I like to quote this one. And many times I, I use this one to, as a starting launching point. But oftentimes I would start at verse 14 and end at verse 19. And that's what I'm going to do here. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. That's present. But he who does not believe is condemned already. He has a state of condemnation. 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. There's a place to start to say, okay, how can I fit myself to be in a place to properly appropriate what the things are that are for me in Psalm 112, all of these wonderful things that happen. Now, so that's the starting point. And if a person doesn't have that, you know, there are a lot of principles in Scripture that if people just take them, non-believing people, and make a good effort to apply them, their lives would be better. No doubt about it. But that doesn't bring salvation. And so the lives can be better temporally, but forever off the mark. And so just temporal blessing is never, should never be a goal of anyone. Mere temporal blessing. That should never be the goal. Because we are temporarily here. And we're going to meet our creator. One of the things I said when there's a little group of people we met with recently. And I said, well, you know, these various ones have passed out of this life. Just got noticed again of a husband of one of my cousins, 73 years old, he has departed from this life. We all are going to have that experience of departing from this. And God says it is appointed unto us one time to do that. But then after that, there is judgment. Now, those who have properly appropriated to themselves what John 3, 14 and 19 says, they don't have to worry about that part because that's already settled. When they get to the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat judgment, there's not a question as to whether or not they're going to spend eternity with the Lord. That was settled before they ever showed up. But for the others, their end was also already settled before they showed up at the great white throne judgment. So I had a couple of other verses here, and our time is ending quickly here, so I'm just going to read a couple of these. I put down 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, so that we might become righteous, so that we can look in this psalm and say, oh, all these wonderful blessings for the righteous, I'm one of them. God gave his son, the Lord Jesus, in order to make that possible for us. Or consider Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen who is even at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for us. He intercedes for us. Or as one translation put it, 
pleading for us. So we have that hope. And so we can read this psalm. It, it says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord in Psalm 112, who delights greatly in his commandments. And then it lists all these other things. That is a goal for us. To be able to be in communion with the psalmist and say, we are together in this. We praise the Lord. We bless him. We fear him. We delight in his commandments. The bottom or the end of 112 makes it explicitly clear that there are two categories the righteous and the wicked. And they don't have the same end. And no matter how much people might want and hope and desire for the last breath to be the end of everything, it just will not be. How do we know? Because that's what God told us. And God never lies. He's always true. Verily and true. He's righteous. He's holy. He's worthy of praise. Praise the Lord. That's what we ought to do. We ought to understand that we ought to praise him. And so the challenge is with us. What are we going to do? Continue to seek his face. Knowing that we need all the interceding that he's doing for us. We need it. That's what we do. But he has not left us alone. He has not left us to just fend for ourselves. He has not left us to just do what we think might be good for us in the moment. He's given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. He's given us his word. He's given us so many things to say, if you want to be in the right relation to me, I've told you what you need. I'm going to close with this thought. I read that one man said that the most horrifying thing that he could think of that God could do to him would be simply to not bother him, to leave him alone to his own designs because he knows that if God did that, there will be no hope for him. We don't want to be left alone, whom the Lord loves. So we feel the chastening of the Lord coming on us. We should say, praise the Lord. <laughs> praise the Lord. See, Chastening is not fun. But God has a purpose in what he does. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege and the honor that you have given to us to have access to the information from the very mind of God that we need and so now help us to heed so that we can be found to be in 
a right relationship with the Holy God. We ask with thanksgiving in his precious name. Amen.